This podcast episode is powered by Afropods, the world's number one podcasting platform for African stories. Hello, uh, welcome to another episode of the Kenyan Wall Street Podcast. My name is Ali Mwakaneno, your usual host. So today I am sitting with Mauricio Kayo, who is the founder of TLCom, a venture capital that I'm sure is not new to you. They've invested in quite a number of companies in Kenya and Africa, including players like AutoCheck, Ilara, Kobo, Ajua, Twiga, Ulesson, and Okra, just to mention a few. And uh, we want to talk about VC in Africa. Welcome to the show, Maurizio. Thank you. Thank you, Ali. A pleasure to be here. So let's let's get to know you a little bit. TLCom is around uh, 20 years old, right? Yes. Yes, we started 20 years ago with a focus initially on Europe and Israel. And over the last 10 years, we've slowly pivoted to focus on Africa. And now we're only focused on Africa. Uh, slowly, the team has evolved by adding people that um, wanted to do venture capital in Africa. Mm-hmm. And so it took us a few years to test the waters, to make a few investments from previous funding African companies that actually worked very well. We invested in Aftrain that we sold to Actis. We invested in Movir 2 that we sold to BlackBerry. And we started to then open an office in Nairobi, uh, where Andrea Tamofora joined. Uh, and then we opened Lagos in 2015. Mm-hmm. Uh, Omobola Johnson was the ICT minister of Nigeria before that with Accenture, and she joined. And then we have Ido Sam, who is uh, formerly sitting in London, but travels a lot. And he was uh, he's from Israel, uh, and um, he uh, joined because he had been a tech entrepreneur in Africa. And so he wanted to bring venture capital to Africa. And I myself, before starting TLCon 20 years ago, I was with Bain & Company with McKinsey. I was leading their technology practice uh, in the EMEA region. Uh, and I wanted to move from advising to giving money and being really of assistance to the entrepreneurs. So that's the story of TLCom in a nutshell. The, the general theory was that there's room for normal venture capital in Africa, the gigantic markets, the high quality entrepreneurs, the opportunities of technology. And so we wanted to really experiment whether uh, international venture capital model was something that could work in Africa, which we think definitely can. Something that you've mentioned here is that right now your sole focus is in Africa. Why did you decide to sort of start investing in Africa and then completely base your investments in the continent? Why not Latin America and why other spaces in the world? Yeah, the background of the team at TLCom is very much, you know, entrepreneurs, strategy consultants, business people, not finance people, and industry people with experience in technology. And so it was very clear 10 years ago when you scanned the radar around globally that technology was doing something very special to Africa. Uh, The beginning of mobile money, uh, the fact that you know penetration of mobile was much higher than penetration of anything much more important than a mobile phone from electricity to education to health to sanitation and so it was very clear that there was very much a business driven market driven opportunity for technology to make a big difference 
in closing that gap in not with technology per se, not technology companies, but technology enabled companies. Right. Technology enabled something else. It's the something else that was underserved in Africa, not the technology, right? And that was very compelling. And when we looked, there was very little venture capital. There was the, 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 um, something happening in South Africa that it's always a little bit of a parallel universe um, mm-hmm. to the continent, uh, very much around the Western model. And then there was the beginning of these wonderful people, pioneers around the Hayab in Nairobi and the beginning of uh, something happening in Lagos. And we thought that there was room for uh, venture capital because we, we were talking to so many entrepreneurs uh, that could only access impact capital or social initiatives. And obviously they were going with it because it was the only source of money, but had the opportunity if pushed correctly to, to create very large companies. So it was very much a business fundamentals, industrial reasoning that pushed us to say, Africa, you know, gravity works in Africa, venture capital can work in Africa as well. So let's give it a serious try. Just to sort of uh, differentiate TLCOM from other players in Africa, of course, we have other sources of um, funding for startups. What do you think is a differentiator for VC in the continent and specifically TLCOM? I think that, you know, if we were playing in China, Silicon Valley, Israel or Europe, we would be one of many because we have not invented venture capital. We're just playing by the rules. (laughs) We try to be as world-class as possible, but we are doing normal venture capital, right? But this is something still a little bit unique, right, in Africa. Let me try to explain. I think that, you know, when a venture capitalist looks at an opportunity, an entrepreneur, the key question to ask is not what can go wrong, like a private equity fund would ask, because the real uh, honest answer would be everything can go wrong, right? But the question to ask is if everything works, is that big enough, right? That's the question. So we know that not always everything works and not always everything will work, but we can only allow ourselves to invest in initiatives where if everything works, they can return the entire fund, right? They can be 10, 20x returns, right? So we need to look at many entrepreneurs. We currently have a deal flow. We look on average to about, you know, 250 to 300 entrepreneurs per quarter and we invest in one, right? Oh, wow. So that's that's the ratio. And we still may, will make mistakes, I'm sure, right? But the idea is to really enable entrepreneurs that are looking at great markets that are already in existence, right? This is the beauty of Africa. The magnitude of the opportunity is not that we are creating something weird and new that we need to prove. People need power, education, health, automotive, retail, uh, financial services. These the, the demand is there, but these markets are terrible for a couple of different reasons. One is that a big part of demand is still very low income. And mm-hmm. so very often this low income, big part of the market is not served because companies don't have an ability to serve it profitably. And technology can create low cost solutions that make it profitable yeah. to serve these big markets profitably because if the cost goes down and the affordable pricing make the company profitable anyway 
And these are the big consumer markets, you know. We have agri-insurance for farmers, uh, education for kids, um, healthcare for everyone. And then there's another big opportunity, which is that a lot of these markets are broken. They're fragmented. Think of retail and think of Twitter, right? 95% of food in Nairobi is sold through thousands of street merchants, right? And what can you do with them? You aggregate demand, you make them relevant in the supply and demand market, and you can drive efficiency all the way up to the farmers about fresh fruit and vegetables or to the wholesalers when it comes to grocery staples. And you can reinvent that supply chain, bringing a lot of efficiency and paying more money to the farmers, um, giving a lower cost to the merchants. So it's about what existing technology can do for entrepreneurs that will take a lot of risk on the business model, right? The risk in Africa is not about technology because technology works. What is the technology of Twiga? Order optimization, order making. I mean, this has been around for 20 years. It can fail, right? Mobile payments. It's been around 10 years. It's, there's no risk when it doesn't get at the other end of the What can fail the business model is execution. I think that what we need to do is to make sure that there's capital available for entrepreneurs that have an ability to think big, to reinvent entire industries and need to use a lot of money before they can be profitable. And so the focus is not so much on seeing how quickly can you become profitable and you create these very small and irrelevant companies, right? But it's about how big can you be? right? How fast can you grow? But there must be clarity on the fact that this business model at some point with the proper critical mass can be very, very profitable. So I think we would like to see a lot more teams like ours that are happy to give money to companies that are absorbing a lot of cash, growing fast and changing the markets, right? But, you know, Partech is doing the same. The IFC uh, direct investment team is doing the same, um, you know, Orange is doing the same. So there are teams, but we need 20 teams, not four, right? There's enough seed capital, there's enough growth capital, the, you know, African-based, uh, Helios, uh, DPI, or the for profitable companies that need to go to the next stage. But where are the people that can write $5 million check in Series A and B? with a view that it's okay to lose money and grow fast for a few years, if in fact there's clarity on a business model that can generate cash at some point. You seem to be quite more of a really patient long-term investor from what you say. Yeah, but well, I mean, venture capital is not new. It's been around for about 70 years, uh, just at the tail end of World War II started in, in Silicon Valley. And when you look at the holding period of the good companies that exit with high multiples, this holding period are usually very long. Very long means, you know, 10 years or more. And that's, to me, is very patient. So when I hear that impact capital is inventing patient capital, it makes me smile a little bit because um, there are companies that in three years achieve a lot and the market decides that they are ready for a higher valuation, but there's companies that take longer. And usually, you know, between an investment and an exit is at least five years and it can go all the way to 10 or more. So I, I think that the, the, the important feature is to have a wide repertoire and not having limits to say, if it takes three years, I'm happy. If it takes 13 years, I'm happy. Um, 
you know, we are the service of the entrepreneur. The hero is the entrepreneur, is not the venture capitalist, right? So we need to uh, make sure that we provide capital, we provide assistance, uh, we provide syndication of more money for subsequent funds. We try to be relevant in uh, opening our networks of, you know, commercial opportunity, government links, regulators, whatever, recruiting. So it's really about what makes that company a better company, right? Valuation will take care of itself. The focus must be on the controllable variables, which are the business fundamentals, right? So that, that's what we try to do. And it takes time. So it's, it's patient capital, definitely. I like some of the things that uh, you mentioned, but I feel like that would fit great in this next question, which is, um, what is the algorithm for our great company or a great entrepreneur that would fit into your portfolio? Yeah, I think we adopt a very simple framework when we look at opportunities, right? And we ask three questions. The first question is, is this entrepreneur playing in an attractive market? And what is an attractive market? An attractive market is not just a large market that is growing fast, but it's a market where technology can make a difference, is a market that has a tendency to consolidate at the end, is a market that doesn't require a lot of capex, it's a market in the, it's an industry where the economics usually have high gross margin and therefore technology can really play a role in, in scalability when there's not a lot of dependency on regulation and the government spend. So there, there are features of an attractive market that are quite, I wouldn't say sophisticated, but it's just a multidimensional way of defining, oh, this is a great space, right? So when you look at the street vendors of uh, that Twig is serving, that's a wonderful market, right? There's thousands of them and there's an opportunity to redesign that space. And the beauty is that demand is already there. So you don't have to convince people to buy food, right? But you can give them a much, much better experience, right? Or without a check, you don't have to convince people to trade their used cars or to buy another car, right? But currently, the experience is terrible. Have you tried to sell your car in Lagos, right? It's a, a gigantic challenge. So that is a beautiful, attractive market. It's big. People are unhappy and they really need that stuff. So how can we redesign it and we can use technology to give you know, car dealers better economics, consumers a better experience, and so on and so forth. So first of all, an attractive market, right? The second question is about the company. Is this a great company or not? Is this company capable of capturing that opportunity? And yes, I know that the common wisdom is that, you know, venture capital early stage, so it's about the team, the team, the team. Yes, but in addition to the team, you know, a passionate team is not enough, quite frankly, right? People that run around and are really passionate about wanting to change Africa don't make the cap. These must be people that have an ability to articulate a strategy that wins in those, in those attractive markets and execute that strategy. And so these must be teams that have an ability to understand that there's already someone else selling cars. There's already someone else selling food. There's already someone else providing healthcare and education and logistics and stuff. But they design a business model using technology that ends up with a lower cost position and or with more value perceived by the customers, right? When there's a compelling ability to articulate that strategy and to execute that strategy, then that is a great company, right? 
in technology, usually at the same time. So the third point, again, is you can have a great company in a great market that can be not a very good investment. And so the third question is, is this a good investment? What is a good investment? An investment where, you know, the valuation makes sense and when the entrepreneur really is ready to embrace the model of venture capital, where you fundamentally give up the sole ownership and leadership of the company, accepting the advice and the role of someone else on your board in exchange for increasing the odds of having a bigger pie, right? And so the, the focus on the size of the pie should really prevail on the anxiety of the extra 1% dilution. And the way we look at valuation is not to try and apply multiples to the existing metric of the company, but rather to work with the entrepreneur to ask ourselves the question, how will the company look like three to five years from now, right? And what can be the value of that company, you know, that fictional company that doesn't exist? And if we think that it's really, you know, 100 million of revenues and 20 million of EBITDA, and that the value of that company is 500 million, then the value of your company now is 50 million, right? Which is 500 divided by 10. So it's really more about the upside drives valuation, not the current situation drives the valuation, right? So that is the way we look at it. And the beauty is that when you look at those hundreds of companies and you apply these filters, there's quite a high number of companies that make the cut. So it's, uh, we wish we had more capital to make more investments. It's not a scarcity problem, it's an abundance problem. I'm, I'm sitting on the other side of the table with you and I'm imagining I am I'm Sim Chijaya from ULESSON or I am uh, the founder and the CEO of Kobo. And my question would be, what would make a TLCOM a great investor in my company? Why do you think a startup would choose you for VC capital as compared to you know any other? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, once again, let's not forget that the core here is that the ability to provide capital, right? That is definitely not enough, but it's an important prerequisite. So first is, is this team capable of providing capital now and in subsequent rounds when we will raise more capital, right? The other is what else beyond money, right? In which way I can benefit from this relationship, from this partnership with a venture capitalist. And I think that there's two sides to it. One is the practical support and assistance that an entrepreneur can get from a VC investor. It can come in many forms. It can be support about the formulation of the strategy, opening doors for commercial opportunities, having access to regulators, uh, opening up networks for recruiting, uh, for subsequent round to have an ability to bring more VCs to the table for more money. So there are many, many tangible ways in which a VC can support an entrepreneur in addition to writing the check. There's another element, which is the attitude and the partnership. We're not the teachers. We're not the people who monitor. We're not the owners to whom you report. We are partner. So we go to hell together and we go out of the hole together, right? So the ability of saying, it's not that I notice, dear entrepreneur, that you have a problem. No, I notice that you and I have a problem, right? 
This is our problem. So if we're not making the budget, if we're not managing to recruit the right people, if we're not managing to launch the right product, it becomes our problem, right? So I think that if I were an entrepreneur, I would look for money. I would look for venture assistance in all sorts of different ways. And I would look for people who have the maturity that have done this before, that have gone on the roller coaster before, and that can tell me it's okay. Everybody thinks that they're failing, right? Uh, everybody has difficult choices to make. Everybody goes through an unexpected success. I'm telling you, uh, entrepreneurs are more terrified when their companies work. What if I'm really successful? Oh my God, now I'm getting 10,000 users more per day, right? How do I do this, right? That can be as scary as nobody's buying my product. So the ability to ride the wave, the peak point and the troughs with the entrepreneur and not blaming the entrepreneur. We're not the owners. We're into this together. Now that you've had at least 20 years to sort of test your model and perfect the relationship between, you know, TLCO and uh, the different players in, in your portfolio, what do you think are some of the best or rather your best performing investments to date? I think that, you know, we've had a, a few great exits in Europe and Israel, and uh, uh, we had a, a couple of very good exits in Africa. Uh, we sold upstream to Actis, the private equity group we sold mobile to, to blackberry and we have some great companies in our portfolio um, all the different companies are at different stages of development and so some of them are much closer to demonstrating the fact that they're successful than others but i think that you know the art there's a lot of art and not a lot of science in, in being a venture capitalist the art of vc is to make sure that you know how to push the entrepreneur realizing and being cognizant of what is the stage in which she is in or he is in. So, uh, you know, my it's like asking a, a parent, which children do you love more, right? It's an impossible answer. Uh, and, and so I, you know, I have a lot of respect for parenting, so I don't want to compare VC to parenting. But um, I think that you know, the exercise of looking at a thousand companies to invest in 10 inevitably brings you very close to those companies. And so uh, they all have uh, so far a great upside. Now, there is something that is the fundamental difference between being a consultant and an investor, which is you have to know when to unplug, right? So a consultant that sees a problem has an instinct to fix it. Right? An investor that sees a problem must decide whether it's fixable or whether it's not fixable. Right? And for an entrepreneur, and, and think about, you know, Sim Shagaya is in his fourth company, right? Etop is in his third company. Grant Achar is in his second company. So an entrepreneur is not one company, it's many companies. And he will be a better entrepreneur in his next company. So it's important that success is killing a project that doesn't work as much as supporting a project that works, right? It's like partnerships, it's like hiring and firing, right? Firing the wrong person is a great HR success. 
as good as promoting a good person, right? So it's a matter of consistency and entrepreneurs that have an ability to unplug, to recognize what is not working, will be much better entrepreneurs the next time around. And we love returning entrepreneurs. We love returning entrepreneurs that have failed uh, because they will now make new mistakes. Uh, so uh, again, I think it's very difficult to have you know, a generic superficial view of what are the good companies. I, I think it's always about the entrepreneurs and not the companies. And uh, again, a great entrepreneur can be associated with a failing company. Let's move more towards um, the market, which is, uh, in this case, the African market, uh, a focus area of GLCO. Um, of course, I think the market has been gaining attention from investors in and outside, but then we have this skew towards specific countries. So if you look at Kenya in East Africa, if you look at Nigeria, if you look at South Africa and a little bit of Egypt in MENA, they attract more attention and, and more funding. Why do you think we have um, that skew? And is it essentially a, a good thing? I'm not so sure good is the right word, but you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, I, I hear you. And look, you know, when we look back, first of all, our offices are in Nairobi and, uh, and Lagos in addition to London. And our investment have been primarily in Kenya and Nigeria in terms of where the companies were started. And then we have a couple of companies that are elsewhere South Africa. Or, and we're looking at Egypt with more and more attention. I think that there's a couple of different perspectives here. The first point is if you follow the money, if you follow the probabilities of massive success, right? And you end up investing in the companies that at the moment have on a five to 10 year horizon, the best probabilities of creating massive value and massive impact on the continent, you will find yourself very, very often in Lagos and Nairobi, a little bit less often in Cairo, and always less and less in Cape Town and Joburg, and never anywhere else, right? So there is a first point that is, the rational approach, if you want not only to make money for your investors, but also to demonstrate to the world in the next five to 10 years that African venture capital is something that deserves more private capital, the odds are that you will find yourself investing in Lagos, Nairobi, Cairo, and possibly Joburg and Cape Town. Right? So that is a first point, and that is good for African venture capital. Right? The other point is that it's a matter of creating expectations. Right. So if you find investors that are ready to take a disproportionate amount of risk to invest in DRC and Ivory Coast, that's fine. Right. But you have to be explicit and saying, we will not make money this time around with this fund, but we will learn about how to be great VCs in DRC, right? Then it's fine. So I think it's a matter of expectation. It's a matter of recognizing that some clusters, entrepreneurship is not something that you do with hackathons financed by Google in a weekend in some random hotel Abidjan, right? That's not how it works, right? You need universities, you need a concentration of 
an entrepreneurship environment that can help and support. You need angel investors. You need, you know, Kenya is a small, irrelevant country, right? And so why all this uh, thing? Because of mobile money, right? So it just so happened that by accident, Central Bank was looking the other way and Vodafone was experimenting this pro bono process, right? And, and PESA came up, right? But but that made all the difference in the world, right? The, 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 there's no place on the planet like East Africa in terms of penetration of mobile money. But that has created an infrastructure that has spurred so much opportunities in the technology world. Nigeria is just the biggest, most compelling entrepreneurial concentration and market on the freaking continent, right? So, you know, where do you want to start your company in Africa? If, if a Martian lands on Africa, it says in Lagos, obviously, where else, right? So South Africa was a more secure place, similar to the West. And then sometimes they are not quite sure whether they're European or African. And so all of a sudden they've lost the train of the speed of Nairobi and Lagos, right? Cairo is exploding just because, you know, it's big. There are great universities, there are great cities, and let's not forget that um, many startups, the markets of the startup are the cities, not the countries, right? So, you know, the fact that Cairo is as big as Lagos makes a gigantic difference in why Egypt is coming up so fast, right? So all I'm saying is that there are ingredients and you cannot just have a government program deciding that, okay, what do we do in Maputo to create a great entrepreneurial class? Look at Rwanda, right? Yeah, the streets are clean, but unfortunately the place is completely irrelevant, right? Because it's more. And so there's, you know, there, there's not much you can do in Rwanda, quite frankly, right? So I think that the difference is always made by the entrepreneurs. When we will have a great Angolan entrepreneurs that shows that that is a great place to start a company for a regional expansion, then Angola will become great or Francophone Africa. But, you know, Francophone Africa, you have all this French money trying to make startups and nothing happens. Partech was established in Dakar and they have invested in Nigeria and Kenya. Of course, they are great VCs and they're trying to make money, right? So this is not something that you can artificially, intentionally create. You have to have a number of ingredients. And so far, the ingredients have worked wonders in a few places. More will happen, but we need to be aware of the fact that if we want to explore other geographies that are less compelling, we should be very, very clear with our investors in terms of return and risk expectations. Look at the other side of, uh, of you know, some of the key markets like, say, um, Kenya and, and Nigeria. While Kenya has made, you know, great strides in, of course, mobile money, which is which has formed a platform in which companies can be formed and ride on. Yeah. It has also come with quite some uncertainty, especially this year. So we've had um, new taxes like the minimum tax. Um, in Nigeria, we've had uncertainty in terms of you know emerging technologies like cryptocurrency with uh, yeah. the unclear position of, yeah. of the Central Bank of Nigeria. How do you as a venture capital leader handle these regulatory uncertainties? 
Yeah. So the first, the first defense is, is, is stay away from it, right? So the, the idea is not to know how to help a company that was betting on cryptocurrency and now it's forbidden, right? So what do we do? The best strategy there is not to invest in companies that end up in that risk. So I think that the first um, reaction that we have is that when we look at how attractive is the market, back to our three questions that we ask when we talk mm -hmm. to entrepreneurs, when we see a regulatory risk, that's not a good thing, right? So I, I think the, the first point is that we have to accept the fact that some industries are more regulated than others, financial services or maybe energy or, but in general, financial services are more, so things that have to do with telcos and banks and insurance companies end up being quite regulated, right? Um, so I, I think the first point is to have the ability and the knowledge to see when regulation can be a driving factor of returns. When you, when you write an investment memo, when there are more pages on currency risk than the business fundamentals, that's a good thing. It's definitely a what flag. would drop the investment, right? <laughs> uh, so, uh, so that is, is the first point. The other is that you need to recognize a couple of different things. First, African governments are doing a lot to try and manage their countries in a much better way than in the past. The infrastructure situation is better. The regulatory environments are trying to make their best. Uh, there are a lot of initiatives. I'm not talking about shutting down the internet in Tanzania. That's just bad governance, right? But the central bank of Nigeria, I think honestly that their objective is not to hit on the cryptocurrency entrepreneur. He's trying to manage the currency, right? And so, of course, the flight to cryptocurrency is a flight to avoid the risk of the Naira, right? From all the people that are using that. And so I think that that becomes part of the toolkit of a central banker that tries to manage the interest rates and the, and the things. So I think that most of the governments in Africa are actually well-intentioned and in good faith. And when some of their actions hit very directly into the startup world, it's not because the objective is to damage the entrepreneurship community of the country, but because it's kind of a side effect of an attempt to do good in a different direction, right? I think that the, you know, the governments are now quite decent uh, in Africa. Um, so we, we blaming the government and blaming regulators, it's a little bit weak, uh, I think, as an excuse, as an alibi. We should focus on business fundamentals and do our parts there. You know, still in Africa, we are quite a young ecosystem in comparison to, you know, other regions of the world. And uh, the beauty of it is we are a blank canvas and entrepreneurs and their partners get to paint as they wish. But then the other side of the coin is some of the risks that would arise from the continent might not be as common or popular in other parts of the world. How do you handle that uncertainty of a young ecosystem? So I think that, you know, Africa has, of course, a number of peculiarities. 
uh, I think we should be very honest in recognizing what are the challenges, but also what are the unique advantages. I think the challenges are pretty obvious. There's not enough money for venture capital in Africa, period. Right, I, And I think that that is particularly more emphasized in the series A and B, because if you look for 50K, 100K, 200K for a seed round, there's enough players and incubators, programs and accelerators and or angels and you will find it. And if at the other end of the spectrum, you have a profitable company that is growing well, you have a fairly healthy private equity, growth equity kind of industry that is ready to give you money. But the point is there's not enough teams that have an ability to write three, five, $10 million checks in series A and B where the companies are going fast, absorbing cash, and they still have a little bit of uncertainty in, uh, you know, not in the level of ambition, but in their ability to execute and to and to demonstrate their thesis. So certainly challenge number one is not enough capital. And this is changing, not as fast as we would like to see, but we would like to see a lot more players like ourselves in the market. The other is, of course, that the ecosystem is still fragile, right? So it, it's still a very young ecosystem. Uh, there's, um, you know, more than 600 accelerators, very few are generating high quality companies. So there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of uh, anxiety to look like Silicon Valley when there's no need to look like anyone else. This is Africa. So there's enough good things to start with. Um, talent can be a challenge. We, there's a lot of diaspora and, and people like yourself that are African and want to work in Africa and that are well educated and stuff, but it can be a challenge. Uh, but the, the, there are also some advantages. One is that, you know, there's very limited technology risk. Uh, Africa is using quite proven technology and a lot of the innovation comes with business models and execution, which is still a big risk, but it's a different kind of risk um, and is more manageable. The other is that there's a lot of private equity money that is having a hard time, about four or five billion of dry powder of funds that have been raised and now are looking for companies and they're running out of companies. If venture capitalists have an ability to create companies that have five to 10 million of EBITDA growing fast, there will be the certainty that exits will always have some private equity funds at the table to discuss. And that's a luxury that is not uh, present in the US, in Europe, in Israel, in India or China uh, or Latin America. And the other point is what you were saying is that there's very little legacy, right? So Africa is the place where we can design together model of the 21st century, right? There's nothing to lose. There's nothing, period, right? <laughs> so uh, that's very exciting because the companies are uh, being designed now by people who have grown up with the awareness of the value of technology and digital transformation, of the awareness of green and climate change, of the awareness of these equalities not making sense. And so the company itself, the objective function of the enterprise is changing. Uh, and uh, Africa has nothing to lose. So Africa can be a very interesting sandbox for global VC to innovate and think about what VC can look like uh, in the years ahead. As we move towards wrapping up this interview, of course, we have countries in the third world, uh, maybe say in Latin America, 
which have challenges that could mimic those in Africa, but not necessarily the same infrastructure as Africa. So, for example, um, it's incomparable the mobile penetration in Africa vis-a-vis um, those countries in, in Latin America. Um, what would you advise uh, VCs or, in general, uh, investors that are looking to uh, enter Africa from search places? Oh, look, uh, I think that there is a big opportunity and what we are seeing is that there are US VCs that are now having developed a global view and having experienced good investments in India and China and Latin America are now starting to look at Africa. We have seen that with ULESSON being led by our ventures, the Fox went round. We've seen that with Okra that has just announced around led by Sousa Ventures. Uh, we've seen with Twiga and Kobo, where the subsequent rounds have been led by Goldman Sachs. We've seen Andela with Generation Fund. So there is a growing awareness globally that there is an opportunity in Africa, right? So I think that whether the money comes from the US or Latin America or other emerging markets, it's very clear that Africa is gaining recognition on the map. So those are all very welcome uh, contributions. I think that my advice uh, to to these people would be to have uh, a very much of a data-driven approach and so develop their own point of view about Africa and not borrowing uh, maybe old point of views about Africa having to be social impact or whatever to be relevant. Africa is a business, market, commercial, entrepreneurial opportunity. Um, and I think the other thing is that there are a lot of local teams that are very happy to cooperate and to be um, the on-the-ground presence for these uh, foreign investors that maybe don't have the same level of familiarity with the continent and like the idea of investing in companies that also have local investors. So I think it's a very positive trend. Uh, it's something that has to be encouraged and gives us all in Africa a lot of responsibility to perform well and to uh, you know measure up to the expectations. Um, last question, Mauricio. Yeah. On the sectors, I understand that you know, your, your VC has invested in, in, in transport through Kobo and um, in um, education through through um, ULESSON. Sector-wise, what do you think is the next promising? I'm avoiding the word giant after fintech. <laughs> I think that, look, fintech has been a good thing for Africa and it's been a good thing for Africa in the sense that is the most immediate, uh, obvious application of technology, right? There's no goods and services to move. It's just bits. It's money, right? It's fine. It's insurance policies and it's bank contracts and it's payments and it's lending. And it's, uh, so it's obvious. And it's been a good general rehearsal for what technology can do in places outside of technology, right? I think the name of the game is that this is about technology enabled something and, uh, you know, there is the rest of GDP beyond fintech that is waiting for technology to play. There's education, there is health, there is energy, there is automotive, there's retail, logistics, everything. And there is fintech, right? So my sense is that healthcare, uh, it's not about 
the vertical, the industry definition, healthcare versus automotive or logistics, is more about the ability to enable these entrepreneurs to use technology to do something else. And we have to follow the entrepreneurs, not the sector. If, if you have a great entrepreneur and he wants to do healthcare, that's the thing to do. It's not that healthcare is attractive, right? No, it's attractive because you have a great entrepreneur working in healthcare. That's why healthcare is attractive, right? So I think if we become more entrepreneur-centric and less anxious of finding the next big thing, the next big thing is a collection of next big entrepreneurs, right? Uh, and if uh, you have something that spends its life uh, uh, suffering from uh, uh, market imperfection in insurance, that's the, the next big thing, right? So is is where the great entrepreneurs are. The best VCs will be those that will have the largest share of great entrepreneurs, and the sectors will be dictated by the entrepreneurs. I, I'm not so sure it could be said better in any any way. <laughs> This is all what I had for today. Rizio, thank you so much for for creating time for this podcast. And uh, I am really, really looking forward to more conversations with you on not only understanding Telcom as a VC, but also um, VC in general and Africa. Thank you so much for today. Any Anytime, Ali. Thank you for this service of uh, informing the continent about venture capital and entrepreneurship. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. All right. You have thank a good day. Ciao. To our listeners, uh, that was Maurizio Caio, the founder of um, TLCom. And um, we were talking about the general investment universe in Africa. And uh, special thanks to uh, the guys at AVCA for holding great discussions in the past AVCA conference where we had um, investors from all over the world talking about um, Africa and how to enter the market and just networking. Uh, for this and other great podcasts, please visit podcast.kenyanwallstreet.com. Have a good day.